Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Last week, we learned that a good abdominal pain differential, the, the type of differential that earned kind of that top one-third on your slow, it's not limited to quadrants. Don't limit your differential diagnosis of abdominal pain to things that are found classically in a quadrant. Many life-threatening intra-abdominal causes of abdominal pain don't match a, a quadrant. And that's even if you exclude all of your non-GI causes of abdominal pain as well. If your differentials are only including classic quadrant-based diagnoses, you're behind. That's only a quarter probably of what you need to actually know for your clerkship. So when we had talked about this last week, we basically covered the first two intra-abdominal causes of abdominal pain that aren't located in a quadrant, mesenteric ischemia, in small bowel obstruction. And this week, we're going to be wrapping up with two more bowelies. So here's our case. Hello, Dr. Olson. I have an 80-year-old female with a history of hysterectomy, peptic ulcer disease, chronic constipation, diverticulosis, and she presents with abdominal pain. She comes from a nursing home and has advanced dementia, so history is limited, but she seems to be having severe sudden abdominal pain. The skilled nursing facility says that she didn't eat dinner last night and was just kind of out of it this morning, so they sent her here for evaluation. They state that she has been constipated and that she's also been having some dark stools, but according to the report, there's been no fevers. She has no history of AFib, no vomiting. Um, they do note that her urine smelled strong. Here, she is afebrile and her vital signs are all within normal limits. She has a distended abdomen. There's moderate tenderness, but I don't feel any rebound or guarding or rigidity. But just given how severe the pain is, I doubt it's just UTI or constipation. We need to rule out the life threats of small bowel obstruction, diverticulitis, volvulus maybe, MI. So for my testing plan, I want to get a CBC, BMP, LFTs, lipase, troponin, lactic acid, EKG, and a CT scan of his abdomen or uh, sorry, uh, of her abdomen with IV contrast. And for my treatment plan, I would like to get her four milligrams IV Zofran, four milligrams IV morphine, and let's keep her MPO for now. All right, so let's talk about some intra, more non-quadrant-based intra-abdominal causes of abdominal pain that you have to put on your differential diagnosis that you really don't want to miss. And the big one this week that we're going to cover first is perforated viscous. Now, this is in some ways kind of a big catch-all type category because perforated viscous is kind of the end point of lots of abdominal diagnoses, many of which we've already covered. Appendicitis can perforate. Diverticulitis can perforate. Peptic ulcers is a big one that can perforate. And when it does perforate, air, poop, Bacteria squirt into the peritoneum, which is normally sterile, and you get super sick. That's perforated viscous. It's that end point of lots of different intra-abdominal issues. So what do you see on history? Now, these patients, they frequently, usually in my experience so far, which is limited, have been having some sort of abdominal pain type symptom, and it's been going on for several days. And 
that it basically just got severe now, whatever the issue was. So appendix, whatever it is, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And now that appendix perforated. Okay. Things don't usually insta perf. What I will say is that every time I've seen perforated viscous, it's almost never in like a healthy young adult. This is one of those big diagnoses in the elderly that makes their abdominal pain mortality so high. Elderly patients, immunosuppressed patients, um, diabetics, I guess. I had a patient with a connective tissue disorder once. Um, young pediatric patients, maybe kind of way on the other, the other extreme. The risk factor, the historical risk factor for perforated viscous is really anything that causes the patient to not come in right away with whatever abdominal process it was that was going on because they don't experience it or they don't communicate it very well initially. And it's only noticed when it gets really severe at that end point of perforated viscous. So again, elderly patients is a really big one. These patients with, you know, chronic constipation and UTIs, everyone's just like, oh, it's constipation, oh, it's UTI, oh, they're having some abdominal pain, they're just constipated, and they have dementia, and they don't even communicate anymore. Um, you know, that's the type of patient where you, you see this a lot. Exam. These patients uh, with perforated viscous, they're usually pretty sick at this point. So frequently with surge criteria, so fever, severe abdominal pain. But the big thing here with perforated viscous, uh, more so than obvious stuff, right, like, you know, tachycardia or whatever, is that frequently patients with perforated viscous have what are called peritoneal signs on abdominal exam. So when we're talking about peritoneal signs on abdominal exam, we're talking about Bad, a, a concerning exam that you frequently see with perforated viscous. But uh, let me clarify something here. So let's say this patient is, um, they let's say they have good musculature and they aren't like this frail old person that's all kind of shriveled up and they don't have any muscles left, right? A patient with peritoneal signs, if I get peritoneal signs because I let something perforate, my abdomen is going to feel rigid. And I'm going to be guarding, I'm going to be flexing my muscles against you from, from palpating uh, frequently involuntarily. Like you could say, just, it's relaxed, it's okay, I'm just feeling the outside and I still can't, I still can't help it. Uh, you'll have rebound. So I'll, you know, you'll push in and you'll hold it there for a little bit and maybe my pain just diminishes a little bit. Obviously it hurts because you're pushing on it. But then when you let go suddenly and that rebound pain, it makes me go like, oh, and that, like, I tense up those muscles again. It's really obvious in young, healthy adults, the peritoneal signs. Another way to test rebound, by the way, what I found works really well is using percussion. This is a trick I found in, um, I think I heard it in Cope's Guide to the Abdominal Exam, that book. I've mentioned it before. But, you know, you, you think, like, why would you ever do percussion? Well, my experience, like a good, firm, like percussion tap is a really good like test for peritoneal signs. It kind of gets that, that, that jiggle, that just percussion wave goes down. And I just, I think it's really good, um, rebound type finding. The other thing that you can do if you don't want to like tap on their tum tum, like a drum drum is just palpate deeply, deeply, like I said, and hold. And again, this is for rebound and you hold it for a few seconds. And usually it, it, they kind of like adjust to it, I guess you could say, but then just, without making like a big deal of it, just like let go really quick and see how much that hurts them. If it doesn't really bother them, that's no big deal. If you let go and all of a sudden they can't talk to you for five seconds because it hurts so bad for you to release, that's rebound. 
So this is all of these peritoneal symptoms, the rigidity, the gardening, the rebound. This is the type of stuff you see in patients with perforated viscous. Um, you're looking for these peritoneal findings. So the only reason I say this though, and I, these patients that are like 90 years old and they're all frail, they don't have musculature, right? So frequently they could have bad pain when you palpate, or maybe you don't even realize they're having bad pain because they can't communicate with you, but they don't have abs that they're going to flex against you because they're like, you know, 120 years old and there's just, there's nothing left. It's all, it's all gone. And so you don't actually get peritoneal signs frequently in patients who don't have abdominal musculature because they're so old. So it can be tricky, but that's the classic exam for perforated viscous. I'm trying to move faster this week. So I don't want you to just be stuck listening to me talk endlessly. Testing plan for perforated viscous. You're getting all of your typical abdominal pain labs. CBC, BMP, coags, LFTs, lipase, yada, yada. With that definitive test then being a CT scan, uh, not necessarily with contrast, just get that scan. The only thing that I want to comment on here, and this is more frequently than getting uh, you know, on your test is like more frequently than seeing like a CT scan that reads, oh, the patient has perforated viscous on a CT of their abdomen what you're going to get on your test. So I want you to pay attention here. The test question, they're going to show you that this is just the classic question. They're going to show you an upright chest X-ray. Okay. This is the classic question, an upright chest X-ray. That patient has some atypical bad chest pain or epigastric pain, and they end up getting that up, upright chest kind of two view radiograph. And if you look under the diaphragm, you're going to see this line of free air. That's that's your classic perforated viscous test question. I guarantee you half of you are going to see it. Up, upright x-ray, now to clarify, an upright x-ray isn't going to be your definitive test for this. A CT scan is. I just think that there's going to be a good chance that you see this specific scenario on your test at some point. With that upright chest x-ray and you see it and then it's this like curved just line of free air between the liver and the diaphragm on the right side is usually where you'll, where you'll see it. And then last is treatment plan. So treatment plan for surgical or for perforated viscous is really easy. It's basically an immediate surgical consult. Broad spectrum antibiotics, fluids, resuscitation, and then it's a surgical fix. They get kind of washed out. Um, just get those antibiotics in and you wanna you wanna move fast with this one. That's perforated viscous. I'm sorry if you can hear the my neighbor's lawnmowers in the is in the background and it's distracting me. Anyways, that wraps up everything you need to know about perforations, um, and really those are the main ones that CDEM wants you to know: is the mesenteric ischemia, the small bowel obstruction, and the perforated viscous. Those are your big the big three. There's one more that I want to put in because it's a critical diagnosis. You will see it. I was actually going to say, you don't see this that frequently, but then I was uh, scripting this episode. I actually saw another case. So it is out there and that diagnosis is volvulus and you will see this in adults in the real world. You also see it on your test. Frequently we think of volvulus is with kids, right? But they're not the, the only ones that get this. I maybe, maybe I should have put this last week with like small bowel obstruction because the presentation is very similar, but it's kind of an add on. That's why I put it at the end. So basically, the bowel with volvulus, the bowel is going to loop on itself and it's going to cause a bowel obstruction. And so you know this, but there are two big categories of volvulus. There's the cecal volvulus of the cecum and there's the sigmoid volvulus of the sigmoid. 
And everything basically presents exactly the same as bowel obstruction, except for your treatments. So this is why I'm mentioning this is because the treatments are different for this than with your other obstructed bowels. So generally, patients who don't have severe ischemic volvulus, right? So their lactic is good. They're not really peritoneal. It's just twisted on itself and you caught it early. A lot of times what happens is they actually get scoped by GI. It's GI that's the specialist and they try to untwist it. And surgery is kind of secondary to that in early, you know, non-ischemic, uncomplicated volvulus. The, I've seen this a few times. First time I ever saw it, it went to actually GI first. And I called, I was in residency. Like frequently, I, you know, I didn't necessarily run things past the attending before I did stuff. And I had said, I need to call the, the surgeon. And I called the surgeon and then they yelled at me because they're like, you called GI. And then GI took care of it. It was a volvulus that was really early, non-ischemic. And they went to, they got a scope and it was all untwisted. Volvulus is not an insta-surge consult. It can frequently be a GI consult. And that's the only thing that really differentiates it, at least simplistically, between volvulus and small bowel obstruction. In residency, I don't know if you would see this as a student, maybe, but um, there's some classic abdominal x-ray findings that you'll sometimes see. They call it like the coffee bean and stuff. But uh, generally speaking, you're going to see this since we don't get very many abdominal x-rays anymore. You're going to see this on CT. You're going to suspect it based off of your exam. It happens in elderly people, but that's volvulus. That wraps up the four bowelies this week. So, so far we've talked about several critical diagnoses. We've covered appendicitis, diverticulitis, biliary stuff, pancreatitis. And then we went non-quadrant based and we talked about small bowel obstruction, ischemic bowel, right? Mesenteric ischemia, perforated viscous were the big three. And then I added on volvulus just to keep things kind of mixed up. I'm going to put in, I'm going to publish a program director interview next week just to kind of break, break these up. But these diagnoses, you have to know this differential. You have to know the differential diagnosis for abdominal pain cold because it's so high yield for your tests. It's so high yield for your clerkship. It's covers a quarter of what CDEM wants you to know. And, um, it's just, it's so high yield. And I know that going through and kind of slowing down through these diagnoses is maybe not the most, maybe it's not the most interesting way to teach this. I'm sure I could just do like a quick episode where I'm like, here are the, you know, blah, 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 all the, the your differential diagnosis. But I want to kind of at least have some documented time where I slowed down somewhat and you could go so much slower than this and do like an hour long lecture on each of these, but you just need to, you need to know the critical diagnoses with abdominal pain, no matter how grindy it might feel to you, just get it done because you'll put this on your differential in your presentations and your attending is going to be impressed. That wraps up this episode. Like I said, next week's going to be a PD interview. It's going to be Adina in Ohio. And I got to be honest with you guys. I really like this program director. I really like this is one of those guys. I'm like, can I, can I work for you? Like he was just really, I really respected this guy and this program. I obviously don't have firsthand experiences at this, you know, at Adina, but I think there's a good possibility that if you guys rotated there and checked it out, I think it's, it's a good possibility. This is one of those hidden gems. I was interviewing him. Anytime you're a program leader or in just in life, any leader has the opportunity to brag on themselves. 
this, I, he did the, the so many times when I was talking to him, I'd be asking him about himself or, you know, what he thinks is really good about his program. Right. And he would instantly just turn it in and start bragging on his people. I just thought I was like, I like you. So I just, I just really like him. So check out the interview next week. It's Adina. It's in Ohio. Um, this program just FYI is also friendly to international students. Um, it sounds like, so if you're, uh, from a Caribbean school or something like that, um, that episode might be worth listening to. It's certainly not a very well-known program by any means, um, but it is there. It's in Ohio. It's pretty close to me. It's why I interviewed them. It was within driving distance. I drove down there one day and kind of toured the place and met everybody. But other than that, talk to you in a few weeks again. Uh, this next week is going to be the program director interview. And until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.